the morning, Rock Hill. It's so good to see you here in person. If you're online, thank you for joining us as well. Welcome to you wherever you are across Texas or the nations or even the world. My goodness. But thank you for joining us online. If you have your Bibles, I hope you can open them to Psalm 9. Psalm 9. If you're new with us, we've been walking through the Psalms. Uh, Summer in the Psalms is what we've titled this series. And next week will be our last Sunday just in the Psalms for this year. We'll pick them up, Lord willing. If the creek doesn't freeze or rise or COVID or whatever, we will get, pick it back up. Uh, next summer, and then uh, the fall, when the fall hits, we'll be back in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, just a little note on that. I just want to challenge you just briefly uh, to make it a point to come back together in August to make sure that we are making our attention as the school year begins. I know our rhythms have been a little out of whack since last year. I've realized that over the, the last two years, I've, I've been pastoring here longer during a pandemic than pre-pandemic, all right? So we're just so grateful for all that God is doing, but we're asking you just to renew your commitment to being present and to being engaged in what God is doing here. Now, this last week, I, I began to think about all the, the messes that are happening in our world today. It just seems every day there's a, another one. There seems to be a, another setback within our culture again. And I just began to make a commitment this week to speak about the good things before I ever got to things that were a problem. And I began to realize that as I began to communicate those things, I began to see more of the goodness of God, not less of the goodness of God. Now, this is not some some pop psychological thing. If you start your day with a positive statement, then all these good things are going to come to you. That is not what I'm recommending. What I'm recommending is a biblical recognition of the fact of what Paul says when he says to those who love God, all in all things, God works together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. What I'm just asking you to do is to recognize the goodness of God in all these different things. And as you do that, you'll begin to see how good he has been even beyond what you first thought. Now, David knew this. David lived this. We see this played out to a degree here in Psalm 9. David and begins here in Psalm 9, and some connect Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. You'll, in fact, see that there's a title to many of the Psalms, and there's a title to Psalm 9, but there's not a title to Psalm 10. The reason for that is many put those two Psalms together because they, they form an acrostic which it, it connects both the Psalms together. So Psalm 10 picks up where Psalm 9 left off. However, I think while there are some similarities, like Psalm 9, 9 mentions trouble. Psalm 10, 1 mentions trouble. Both Psalms ask God to rise up. We'll get to that in a minute. Psalm 9, 19 and Psalm 10, 12. Both Psalms affirm that God does not forget the afflicted. Psalm 9, 12 and 10, 12. I, I think while there are similarities, there's enough distinction for us to deal with each Psalm individually. So if you're at Psalm 9, it helps us to know that you're there and engaged in the Word. If you're online, you can type it as well. But if you're there, will you say Word? All right. Verse 1. I will, that's important, I will thank the Lord with all my heart. I will declare all your wondrous works. I will rejoice and boast about you. I will sing about your name, Most High. When my enemies retreat, they stumble and perish before you. You, you have upheld my just cause. You, you, have seated, you are seated on your throne as a righteous judge. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have erased their name forever and ever. 
The enemy has come to eternal ruin. You have uprooted the cities and the very memory of them has perished. Verse 7, but. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for judgment and he judges the world with righteousness. He executes judgment on the nations with fairness. The Lord is a refuge for the persecuted, a refuge in time of trouble. For those who know your name, trust in you because you have not abandoned those who seek you, Lord. Sing to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Proclaim his deeds among the nations. For the one who seeks an accounting for bloodshed remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the oppressed. Verse 13 is a shift, okay? So just note that. Be gracious to me. Be gracious to me, Lord. Consider my affliction at the hands of those who hate me. Lift me up from the gates of death so that I may declare all your praises. I will rejoice in your salvation within the gates of daughter Zion. The nations have fallen into the pit they made. Their foot is caught in the net and they have concealed. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed justice, snarling, snaring, snaring the wicked by the work of their hands. The wicked will return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God, for the needy will not always be forgotten. The hope of the oppressed will not perish forever. Rise up, Lord. Do not let mere humans prevail. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Put terror in them, Lord. Let the nations know they are only humans. David is in a predicament. We don't know what predicament he's in. Some of the Psalms let us know a little insight onto the context, but we're not sure what the context is all we know is that he has spent these first 12 verses praising God. David praises God. We know that as the, even under the, the title of this psalm, there's for the choir director, according to Muthalaban, a psalm of David. That sometimes gives us a little bit of an insight into the context of what is happening in the life of David in this particular moment. However, we aren't really sure what's going on because Muth Laban is a little nebulous comment. On one level, it could mean the death of a son, so this man's son has died, or it could mean an instruction to the choir director and orchestra director in the middle of singing this hymn. So to come to a concrete, excuse me, conclusion to say, well, it's this or that, we have to say we're not real sure what that means other than there is some circumstance that David is experiencing to which he is having to decide what he's going to do with what he's facing. David praises God. Whatever the situation David finds himself in, he praises God. Let me ask you something. How, how does somebody... Keep his head up in the middle of a mess. How does somebody keep their head above the water when the tides are coming? How does somebody keep a level head when there's chaos happening all around them? Who knows what the circumstances were for David? And I'm not totally sure what the circumstance is for you. However, you could have received a medical revelation that is like a left hook to your jaw. And it's a mess, and you're not sure how you're going to handle it. 
Maybe, just maybe, a member of your family drops a little bit of a bomb in your lap. You are not expecting it. It came from left field. You're not sure how to respond. Maybe, just maybe, your boss has informed you that your job will no longer be held by you and you will no longer be invited back to the desk in which you've held for so many years. He's asked you to leave and it's not good. You look at the news And just when we thought COVID was gone, there seems to be a narrative being built, I think, by the media to just perpetuate fear in our culture to prevent us from doing what God has called us to do. I'll get to that more in a minute. Now, some of us like to think on our, we think we think best on our own two feet in the middle of a crisis. We, we like to be in front of the firing squad and dodge the bullets. Some of us make plans and then have plans for that plan when that plan fails and then plans for that plan when that plan fails and that plan fails and then we have another plan after that. No matter what, you found yourself in the middle of a mess. How does someone keep their head up in the middle of a mess? David praises God. He begins with the Lord. He's going to talk about the Lord in the middle, and he's going to end with the Lord. David was preoccupied not with this problem, but with praise. He wasn't focused on the circumstance. He was focused on the king who sits on the throne over all circumstances. Ever been on a date where you're speaking to somebody, I've not been on a date in a while, but you've ever been on a date and you're trying to have a conversation with the other person, but they've taken a picture of their uneaten food and waiting to see the comments and likes from all the friends about the food that they haven't even touched, and you're trying to have a conversation. You ever been like that? They're preoccupied. You ever had a conversation with somebody that you care about? They're reading, back in the day, they were reading the newspaper. Are you listening to me? Yeah. What did I say? I don't know. But so-and-so went three for four last night in the game. But I guess that doesn't matter. Now we have our eyes locked onto our phones. The, The worst thing that I've ever received from my children, you ready for this, was a picture that they drew of me holding a phone. They said, Daddy, that's you. Our children know what it's like to be preoccupied. You ask them to go clean their room. So I'm about to turn the tables. They go out to clean their room. And they go to their room, and all of a sudden, they haven't touched a thing in their room. Why? They're preoccupied with playing or disobeying or whatever they're doing. You understand what it's like to be preoccupied. David is not preoccupied on the problem. He's preoccupied with praise. It would be my conviction that many of you just showing up today have a sense of what you are to be preoccupied with. I need you to see something, though, in verses 1 and 2. David, I'm not just pulling this around. David says, I will. David says, I will. David says, I will. David says, I will. What's he getting at? Worship is a decision. Praising God is a decision. Praising God is not based upon how you feel. Praising God is not based upon the circumstances. Praising God isn't based upon the style of music. Praising God is not based upon what the preacher looks like. He's got a face for radio. God help us. We have to understand praising God is a decision. I will worship. This is what David's saying. 
I'm not preoccupied with my problem. I got lots of problems. I got too many problems to count. I'm going to focus on praising God. You have to make a decision to worship. David says, I will thank the Lord. I will thank the Lord. I will declare your works. I will rejoice and boast about you. I will sing about your name. When we come together, we, we have to make the choice. I'm worshiping today. I have a friend. I, I met him this, about a month ago, and, and he always, he's coined this term, and I'm going to quote it, and then I'll steal it one day down the road, okay? But his name's Dean and Sarah. He's a church planner from Tallahassee, Florida. He, he says this, Sunday morning worship is a Saturday night decision. To worship, you have to make a decision. The object of our worship is the Lord. Until you come to the point to realize that all that I am, I give to all that I know, you will never begin to truly worship the Lord. My professor at seminary, Bruce Leafblad, gave three categories for worshipers on a Sunday morning. These are three brief categories that I just wanted to share with you to help us understand why we have to make the decision to worship and how it fits with verse 1. He, he gave the religious routine attenders. This is just what we've always done. Religious routine attenders. Then you have half-hearted participants. Half-hearted participants. There's a, a school in our state that calls them the two percenters. One percenters. Three percent. I don't know what it is. It's a small percent. Half-hearted, half-hearted attenders. But then, but then he says, but then there's the whole-hearted Worshippers, I thank the Lord with all my heart. This is what David says. When I come to worship, I, I'm not giving platitudes. Oh, yeah, this is just what the wife wants. I'm doing it for the children. No, I will worship. That's what he's saying. Which group are you in? And the more you read your Bible, the more you realize, I, I want to be able to be one who will thank the Lord with all of my heart. Regardless of my problems, regardless of the situation, regardless of the circumstances, I'm preoccupied, David is saying, with worship. What does he do? He, then he, he declares, he declares what? All the wondrous works of the Lord. All the wondrous works? What's he saying? To a degree, he's describing what we ought to be doing on a regular basis, declaring the good news of the gospel. What's a wondrous work of God? Yes, it's his creation. Yes, it's how he's made all these things. But it's also the fact that he has sent Jesus to earth to rescue us from the domain of darkness and then transferred us into the dominion of light. Spurgeon says it this way, gratitude for one mercy refreshes the memory as to a thousand of others. One silver link in the chain draws up a long series of tender remembrances. So he's saying, I'm going to thank the Lord. And as I thank the Lord, I then begin to declare about the wondrous works. So when I choose to worship the Lord and I choose to praise him, all of a sudden wellowing up within me is now declaring to others the wondrous works of God. Even when we reflect on our own sinfulness, even when we've been caught in sin, even when we've disobeyed what we said we would never do again, we remember 
the perseverance and the forgiveness and the kindness and the long-suffering that Jesus has extended and bestowed upon us. Because as we sang, even in my mistakes, yet you still call me your friend. The gospel is the message of how we've been rescued from death. How you today, if you've never trusted in Christ, can have release from your sin. The very word gospel means good news and I think sometimes we treat it like great embarrassment. I don't want anybody to be offended by what I'm going to say. You're going to offend somebody. Why? Because you're telling them, hey, without Christ, you're dead. And the only way you can truly have life is if you repent of your sin, believe that only through Jesus you can be saved, and confess him as Lord. And that can happen for you today, friend. The gospel is not just good advice that you say, well, do this instead of doing that, and you'll be better. No, he says, no, you can't do that. Someone has to do it for you. Christ has done it for you. Just receive it today. The Bible says that we're alienated. That means we're separated, that we're estranged, that we're enemies of God. And so David says, I will declare all your wondrous works. Then I'm going to rejoice and boast not about David, not about even his friends. I'm going to boast about you. I'm going to sing. Why do we sing? We sing because it reminds us to not be preoccupied with our problems, but to be preoccupied with praise. David continues into verse 3. He's going to say some things. He's going to continue to sing. My enemies retreat. They stumble. They perish. Verse, five, verse 4, they upheld that. You, you have upheld my just cause. He's, he's singing all these things. He's praising God for the fact that all these things have happened. In verse 5, you've rebuked the nations. The enemy has come to eternal ruin. The, the memory of them is, has perished. He's praising God for the fact that every person who stood against God at any particular time, they are no more. Their memory is gone. Their influence eradicated. Verse 7 tells us that the Lord sits on his, his throne forever. The enemy has premature victory, but the Lord holds all the victory. He's already seated on his throne. It's an eternal throne forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He's talking about that God is on this throne forever, and no one can take that away from him. No legislation, no laws, no mandates. They, only God, and God alone sits on the throne forever. He says something interesting in to verse 10. He says, those who know your name, those who know your name, it's this Hebrew idiom that's giving us the degree to which he's not just says, I, I know about the name. I intimately know him. And because I intimately know him, I, I trust him. Because I trust him, I, I can be glad. I, I, those who know your name, they trust in you because you've not abandoned those who, who seek you. Verse 11 and 12 then call for all of us to join in the singing. Sing to the Lord. Notice he describes a little bit of a worship service while they're singing, a reminder to them. He says, hey, sing to the Lord. Those who dwell in Zion and then proclaim. Now, I'm not, I'm not looking for job security. I'm just saying there's a preaching element here. Hey, we're going to sing about this. I'm going to preach about this. We're going to preach to the Lord. Proclaim the, his deeds among the nations. When the world wants to pinpoint them themselves as the, the ones who've caused all these things. No, no, God is the great causer. 
God is the one of whom we're going to proclaim singing and preaching as means of glorifying God or joined together. It's often a reminder to me how connected singing and preaching go together when we want to have revival. Somebody who's been moved by the Holy Spirit can't help but sing. I'm going to sing. I'm just going to get it out. Several months ago, I was in the middle of the Grand Canyon, and I'm talking in the middle. What do you do in the middle of the Grand Canyon? I sang. I ran, and I sang. How? Why? I'm meeting with the Lord. I'm exhausted. I'm meeting with the Lord. Praising him, preoccupied with him, not with the situation that we face. Now, David has invited us. Then we get to verse 13. He says, he begins to pray. So David has praised the Lord. Now he's going to pray to God or pray to the Lord. Be gracious to me, Lord. Consider. Lift me up. There was it. David has this invitation now in verse 13. He begins to pray. Praise leads to prayer. Praising God, making high the name of God, leads you to prayer. Often we reverse it. Here, Lord, are all of my problems. Here, Lord, are all of my situations. Here, Lord, are my concerns. Here, Lord, are all the things that are going on in my world. Instead, David says, no, 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 no. Begin with, I will thank the Lord. I will trust in his name. I will boast about his wondrous deeds. Then it leads you to saying, God, be gracious to me. Be gracious to me. Consider me. Lift me up. Why does he want him to do that? He says in verse 14, so that I may declare all your praises. So God, listen to what I have to say. Here's my concerns. Yes, I'm, I'm preoccupied with praise. Yes, I have these problems. But, but Lord, now be gracious to me so that I can declare your, your praises. I'll rejoice in your salvation. He then says the nations have fallen to the pit. He then says in verse 16, the Lord has made himself known, but watch this. Then, then there's this little, you see it at the end, right, just right outside of the text. Hegeon and Selah. Now often these words are there and we really don't understand what they mean because particularly Hegeon is an, is an instruction to the orchestra. Now remember this was a hymn, this was a song being sung. There's, there's some type of instruction happening that he's saying to the band. Hey, band, notice there's a transition here. And then Salem just means to wait or to pause. Why, why is that there? We don't really know what it means particularly, but we do know that it means for them to pause and there's some instruction to the, to the band. So it, it could mean make sure you're tuned, you are, make sure you are in tune. Make sure that if we're going to talk about praying, make sure your heart is in the right place. Make sure that you're not going to say something or ask the Lord something that is not of, out of righteousness, but you're going to ask it out of unrighteousness. Just take a moment. Why do we say that? Because 
verse 17 is not like a verse you put on a mug. No one's going to put this on a coffee mug and say, this is my life verse. The wicked will return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. No one's going to pick up that coffee mug and go, hey, those of you who forgot God, your ultimate destiny is separation forever from God. Those who forget God are literally on the highway to hell. Those who reject and ignore God are those who are on the path of no hope. Those who forget God, they may seem big on this earth, but they will be made small because sin makes us small. And the eternal wrath of God is going to be poured out on all sinners. However, those who've trusted in Christ, that wrath's already been poured out on the cross. For the needy are not always to be forgotten, he says in verse 18. It's a contrast in 17 and 18, is it not? Those who have forgotten God will be forgotten, but those who are oppressed and maybe felt forgotten will not be forgotten by God. And then he makes one final transition. He goes to verse 19. It's this last two verses that are so important to our text. He says, rise up, Lord. Rise up, Lord. Rise up, Lord. We used to sing a song in Bible school. It's called Onward Christian Soldiers. And it's been found now in our context of our day and time to be seen as militant and, and you know, going to war with the culture. And, and, and listen, there's all kinds of things that are happening in our culture. And you might think that's the battle, but... Paul has told us very specifically, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against princes and principalities. Prayer for the believer is his weapon of war. The Christian marches forward in life on their knees. I think we've tried to make it where we're going to battle every ill in our culture, and there are a plenty for us to go after. But the battle is not those things. The battle is on our knees before the Lord, calling on God to do what? Rise up, Lord. Rise up and let the nations know. Let mere humans not prevail. Let the nations be judged in your presence. There is ordinary prayer, and then there's, as Jonathan Edwards says, extraordinary prayer. Extraordinary prayer is needed in uncommon times. Uncommon times call for extraordinary prayer. We ought to be a church calling for extraordinary prayer. Rise up, Lord. We ought to be parents. We ought to be grandparents. We ought to be kids. We ought to be spouses that are calling upon God for extraordinary prayer. Rise up, O Lord. Do not let the mere humans prevail. Let the nations be judged in your presence. I'm telling you, the COVID roller coaster is real. The second, again, we thought it was gone. It just reared its head again. And I'm not downplaying at all because it is real. COVID exists. 
The seeming immorality and idolatry is no longer in the background. It is in the foreground in our culture. Things that people just used to hide behind closed doors now are not just putting it into the open. They're celebrating it, and they're even promoting it, and they're making advertisements about it. And the second you go, well, hey, I'm never going to buy that product again, then somebody else does the same thing. Well, I'm never going to that store again. Well, somebody else is going to do the same thing. And lo and behold, you're making your own and shucking your own corn. I think it's time for us to call upon the Lord to rise up. I want you to hear me when I say this. God does not need America. We live in a great country. I I don't want to live in any other country, if we're being honest. God, by his grace, has granted us life and liberty But God does not need America to accomplish what God will do in the world. But I know this, America desperately needs God. And prayer comes after praise in this song. Before we can ever ask God, God, do do something great in our country. Rise up, O Lord, in our country. We got to get back to, I will thank the Lord I will boast about his and proclaim his wondrous deeds. I will praise the name of the most high. If you've read the Bible, you get all the way to chapter 22. And there's this fascinating moment where the spirit and the bride, the bride is the church. They cry out to to the Lord. They, They say, come, Lord Jesus, quickly, come. To a degree, it's this sentiment to go back, to go, hey, Lord, look, rise up, Lord. Rise up, return, come. And he says, I am coming soon. How does somebody keep their head up in the middle of a mess? David tells us, You praise the Lord, and then you pray to the Lord. Rise up. Rise up, Lord. Does our nation and our world need revival? Yes. But shame on us for asking God to bring revival if we're not willing to praise him first. David wasn't preoccupied with his problems. He's preoccupied with praise. What are you preoccupied with today? Will you pray with me? Father, we come to you now. And Lord, we thank you for the chance to open up your word. Father, if there's somebody online that needs prayer, would they make mention of it? But Father, in this room, in this room, we've declared the gospel. We're inviting now people to respond. Father, there may be some people in this room that have been preoccupied with their problem. But Father, may their heart's affection and mind's attention be turned to praising you, to thank you that no matter what is going on, they can praise you. No matter what the circumstance ends up to be, they will declare your wondrous works. And Lord, may each of us respond as you've called us to respond. May we not hold on to that back of that chair thinking that, well, it's for somebody else. Today is the day of change for us in this room. May we praise you as you've called us to do so. In Christ's name we pray.